0: At Delta, we know Mike and 8C prefers reality TV to reality, so we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie, so we offer
1: all types of food options, because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. The year is 1975, and welcome to the podcast that dares say "nee. The movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear just ducked out. He's on a quest. He didn't tell me what it was for, but I think it rhymes something with like schmoly schmail. Anyway, I'm here to say that, yes, this is the podcast where we go through, evaluate, recontextualize, talk about, turn upside down, plunge into the heart's of some of the greatest films ever made on this planet to decide if, 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 if they are worth sending off this planet and into outer space. We have done a whole series on Oscar contenders and we talked about the Oscars and then we said, what was overlooked this year? <gasps> you all picked my favorite film. It was The Green Knight. Thank you. I don't know if I stacked the table, like if I kind of like put my finger down on the scale. I actually don't think so. I actually don't think so. I think everybody here just has amazing taste, and I want to thank you for that. So we talked about Green Knight in last week's episode, and it kind of got me itching to stick with medieval times, shall we say, to go get my roast chicken and and Pepsi and cheer on some nights. And that is why today we are doing the Holy Grail. Never fear the last minute before Paul jumped on his trusty steed, we did this episode. So I guess it's uh, my turn to try to think of some really ridiculous and cornball way of saying, let's unspool it. Uh, this is really hard. Pretty thus shall we, good sirs and good ladies,
2: unspool it. The year is 1975. The Vietnam War finally ends. President Gerald Ford survives two assassination attempts. Look them up. Patty Hearst is arrested for armed robbery after being abducted and brainwashed into compliance. The notable firsts of the year include Pet Rock, Mood Rings jelly belly jelly beans the kool-aid man oh yeah saturday night live microsoft betamax and digital cameras and who would have thought betamax is the only thing to survive anyway uh this year's unspooled films uh are nashville jaws one flew over the cuckoo's nest Coolie high and now monty python and the holy grail what a great unspooled year now amy Tell us a little bit more about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Who's in it? Who made it? And what was on the radio?
1: Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It is directed by the Terrys, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones. They directed together, sort of. They alternated days, re-edited each other's footage, and decided in all of, after the experience of doing the Holy Grail, that going forward, they would not direct together. Uh, This is not the first Monty Python film, but it is the first Monty Python film with a story, more or less, about the era of Camelot. When King Arthur and his knights and their servants and their strange religious people set out to capture the Holy Grail, or at least kill a lot of people trying. Um, We have in here the whole Python troupe, each playing several or more character roles. Uh, You got Eric Idle, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Graham Chapman, both Terrys, as well as Connie Booth and Carol Chapman as fair maidens in blonde wigs. Take a listen.
3: Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is- Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a life. Time. There comes a Mo Shom picture which changes the whole history of Mo Shom pictures. Uh... Yes, thank you.
1: Next. Once in a lifetime! Go away. What? Next.
3: What's wrong with my voice?
1: When the Holy Grail hit theaters on April 27th, 1975, the Monty Python show had already been on air for over six years in England. But it had not yet broken big in America, not for lack of trying, until... This year, um, this movie comes out. It was a huge underground hit that needed no time at all to become a cult classic. Finally, Monty Python gets started playing on the television sets. It becomes like a cool college thing, and I wonder if part of the love here in America for this movie, for its tale of ye old Britain as a mean, filthy, and violent place, had us Americans, especially in the build-up to our own bicentennial, glad that we did not belong to Britain anymore. That we had tasted what Sir Elton John. A person who actually helped fund the Holy Grail was singing about on the charts in the number one song of its day that Philadelphia freedom.
2: Gotta say, Amy, I feel like Philly is blowing up in the last few weeks. Philly is really putting its putting its foot down on the map, saying, hey, we got a lot more stuff than cheesesteaks out here.
1: You'd almost think they're one of the classic all-American cities.
2: I mean, they are. I love
1: <laughs> but yeah, Elton John, as we said, he helped loan the, the Pythons the money to make this movie. They made this movie for for about $400,000. Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, all of these like musicians in England helped fund this movie because at the time in England, rock stars were being taxed at like 90%. And so they're like, hey, this movie, it might fail. It'll be a tax write-off. We'll see. Except the movie did really, really well. It was like the producers and it made everybody a ton of money that they were trying to lose, but then they won it back and then they were all part of film history. So congratulations. Thank you, rock stars of England for your responsibility in getting this movie made.
2: One more fact about this movie, Amy, that's very interesting. This movie is said to contain 527 jokes. There are 42 <laughs> in the opening credits, and that gives you one joke every 10 and a half seconds, Uh, which I love that this movie has been so analyzed that we can break it down to the amount of jokes and how quickly they come.
1: Whoa, what do they count as a joke? Like, are you talking about in the bring out your dead sequence at the beginning when they're walking through like a play grid in town? Not that we know anything about that. And there's a woman hitting a cat against a wall. Is that a joke?
2: I would say that's a joke.
1: All right. Comedy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, in my research, I also found that in Japan, the film is called Monty Python and the Holy Saki Cup, which is really interesting because I didn't think that Arthurian legends were uh, such an Anglo idea, but I guess it is. I mean, because there is no, I mean, I don't think that there's a Holy Saki Cup. I think they just kind of added that flavor to make it a little bit more relatable.
1: Wait, you're not saying that everything in this movie is not 100% historically accurate, are you?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I think 90% of it is. Castle Anthrax definitely is, I know that. Uh, And definitely the Knights Who Say (laughs) Ni.
1: Do you think the members of Anthrax ever referred to their apartment when they were coming up as young musicians as Castle Anthrax? (laughs) I don't, you know, Amy,
2: I'm so curious how you want to approach talking about this movie because... Obviously, it's so incredibly influential. Monty Python is, to many, their first entry point into comedy. Um, I think, especially for people who were, you know, in their teens and and maybe early 20s, in the 70s, this was the real outlet for subversive comedy comedy. There was no other outlet. SNL came, and I think that first season, uh, which is coming out at the same time as this, has that same energy, but Monty Python was there first, and I think all the nerds were on board with watching reruns of it on PBS, and it infected, I think, all the great comedy that came out of the 70s. Everybody who was making comedy in the 70s, I believe, really was influenced by Monty Python.
1: Yeah. I don't really see any other way around that, honestly. like They seem like kind of a ground zero of the comedy that I think we're still kind of living in today, which absolutely they did better, honestly. They did fantastically. I mean, I love just like absurdist throwing jokes at the wall, seeing what sticks, but done by guys who are all really, really smart. They know exactly what they're subverting. They know exactly when they're getting weird. I mean, these are guys who all met at like Oxford and Cambridge, pretty much. These are all guys with like Pretty heavyweight intellectual like credentials. I mean, John Cleese was like, a professor at large at Cornell for twenty years. Michael Palin, he like had he did three years of a history degree at Oxford, and then he became president of the Royal Geographical Society. Terry Jones, like he wrote tons of books and did these TV shows and documentaries on like Chaucer and other like kind of figures from medieval history. So they're doing a movie about the Holy Grail, but they're doing it with like a lot of knowledge and love and affection and mockery for the King Arthur times for like their own culture, you know, for the history of the country that they live in. It's pointed in a way that I don't think I ever thought about until recently.
2: And I think it's really interesting that you have these people with such deep knowledge, smart people who then go on to not just create Monty Python, but before that, create a children's show. I got to see this children's show at uh, the Paley Center when they were doing a Monty Python retrospective, and it's called Do Not Adjust Your Set. And in it, they are playing with really fun concepts. You can see elements of Monty Python in this show, and it, it made me think, is this why they have such giant crossover. The fact that they can be silly and goofy and appeal to, you know, the visual sense of youth, but at the same time, do it in such an elevated and smart way. They really can appeal to, like, those two parts of your brain.
1: Oh, yeah. And then John Cleese on his own goes and, like, steps even further into like adult maturity. I mean, John Cleese is making the Holy Grail around the same time that he's doing, and this is true, and a lot of these are online, like corporate videos on how to hold meetings and be a good salesperson. Like actual, really serious, here's some tips on how to hold a meeting, corporate docs to be like, I do kid stuff. I do wacky comedy for college kids. And also I like can help save your business. Have you heard these? Because they're sort of funny, but then they're also- incredibly deadpan. This is him just being like, here's how you have a better meeting.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, let us record our five-stage plan for shorter and more productive meetings.
1: Stage one,
3: plan. Clear your mind about the precise objectives of the meeting. Be clear why you need it and list the subjects. Stage two, inform. Make sure everyone knows exactly what is being discussed why, and what you want from the discussion. Anticipate what information and people may be needed and make sure they're there.
2: So basically, these
1: guys are like all over the place, right?
2: I love that. And I think it just speaks to like an ethos of British culture in a way. Uh, The handful of times that I've worked closely with not giant British celebrities, but working British producers and writers, there's this mentality of, What's next? I have to keep on creating and making things because a success on the BBC isn't like the success of an American show. The money isn't even really there. And so you could create giant shows, but you're not making all that all that cash. So they have to be versatile. They have to be able to appear in a chat show, write a game show, do a scripted show, act in multiple types of shows. It makes you like the Swiss army knife of performers. And, uh... I'm always really impressed with that. And I think, especially back in the 70s, you were doing a lot of different stuff because there wasn't that much. uh, There wasn't that much, you know, acclaim to doing a a sketch comedy show. It almost felt like, you know, a a slightly elevated, what, you know, public access show on on some level, I imagine.
1: I mean, do you think that's a good thing? Because the way you describe it, I'm like, yeah, that sounds actually wonderful. What if like, top tier celebrities made a little bit less, but we just had people doing all sorts of crazy things like it was a normal job. I think we would that, have would that. that. Like, I don't know. I get really frustrated when the conversation turns into like elites of Hollywood and stuff. No, what I think this is more like you got a good job. This is what you do.
2: Well, it's like you're in construction. You're just going from building to building. You're working on a project and you're going to the next project, going to the next project. I think right now we have an abundance of projects. And unfortunately, quality doesn't necessitate that, it gets attention. So that's the bummer right now. There's so many options, so many channels, so many shows, uh, but there are these great voices out there, these interesting voices that are breaking the molds. And, you know, whenever you see a network try to capture an original voice, it it always fails. So like uh, network sketch comedy shows with the exception of Saturday Night Live. But I would even argue that Saturday Night Live has been ultimately the same under the same guidance since the 70s, besides the Gene Domanian years, uh, under Lauren Michaels. For better or for worse, it is a singular vision executed by one person. It's not like a corporate putting together, like, okay, that person's attractive and that person's this. And so you have to look for these original voices. I had a sketch comedy show that was created completely independently of a network, uh, Human Giant, you see uh, Key and Peele, shows like The Bus Down, uh, Broad City. Like, all these original voices came out of doing their own stuff and working outside of TV first. I think that that idea of someone scooping you up is the dream, right? Not putting you together. And I think SNL is about putting people together, but when you get... Uh, a group that is working or has a vibe, you're going to get a much purer sense of a comedy voice.
1: I think that's true. And I think Monty Python is actually a great example of a team that pretty much put themselves together. I mean, like Graham Chapman and John, and, uh, John Cleese, they knew each other from Cambridge. Uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin, they knew each other from Oxford. Uh, I think Eric Idle started at Cambridge a year after them, so he met everybody later. And then when Cleese went to New York, that's where he met Terry Gilliam and he brought them together. And from what I hear about how Monty Python originated, BBC basically asked John Cleese if he wanted to do a show. And he was like, I would. But he reached out to Michael Palin and Michael Palin was like, well, if you want me, you have to bring all of my guys, which was everybody else. And they put the show together in a way where they did it, I think, without the hierarchy. You know, like you're talking about Saturday Night Live kind of coming from the voice of Lorne. There's not really a Lorne in the Monty Python group. You know, there's right. not really, like, leaders. I mean, it, John Cleese is the first one to leave, even though he technically puts the group together. And when it, when they started making films like this, the fact that Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directed was really kind of because nobody else wanted to do it. They're like, oh, directing. You have to, like, stay on top of everybody and be the nag, and you're going to, to do as many performances. And for Terry Gilliam, who preferred to do the animation anyways, he was like, great. I only show up to do, like, crazy ugly characters of ugly people being nuts. Um, and so he didn't mind stepping back, but like it was kind of thought here that like to be in charge of the troop was like a losing proposition. You didn't really want to be them because then everybody was mad at you the whole time. Everybody is furious at Terry Gilliam making this because they'd be like improvising something and getting really wacky and crouching on the floor and cutting off people's legs. And he'd be like, we have to do this again because I don't have enough smoke or the light isn't correct. Or can you move over just a little bit? He was treating them basically like they were pieces of paper that he was animating. And they were like, Terry, you cannot do this and started to lose their minds. But yeah, that's, but that's how also they directing, though, yeah. too. It's like he's yeah. looking
2: at something that they're not looking at. They're getting a vibe or a sense of the scene working, but they're not behind the camera. And I think that is you need that voice. You need a strong director, I think, in comedy in general, because they have to be watching it from a totally different vantage point.
1: True. But for this troop, this troupe is all about anarchy and not having leaders. You know, I mean, that's basically what this whole movie is about. Here comes a guy. I'm King Arthur. I'm in charge. I'm talking like I'm in charge. I'm just introducing myself to people like, you know, it's me, King Arthur.
3: Defeater of the Saxons. Sovereign of all England. Pull the other one. I am. And this is my trusty servant, Patsy. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. I must speak with your lord and master. What, ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So, we have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land. Through the kingdom of Mercia, through... Where would you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone.
1: And the whole movie is about, like, you just called yourself a king? Like, we're these people living in Britain, and now you want to say you're in charge of us? What? No, that doesn't make any sense. We don't want to do that. And they're using this King Arthur story to basically... Make fun of monarchies and like anybody who thinks they're superior. To have like characters who just come out in the really early on in this movie and they're like, political hierarchies, I didn't vote for you. There's violence inherent in the system. I mean, all of those amazing kind of fights that they have back and forth with like the character of Dennis.
3: You treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... This is got- some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons?
1: And so I love that. I think there's actually a lot of politics in the Holy Grail that they're really talking about, you know, through this like kind of wacky comedy. Because when you rewind back to when they're making this film in London, stuff is like dark, like literally dark. Like I'm not even using dark as an exaggeration. It is actually dark because in early 70s England around this time, there was this power shortage in the country. So at night, they would be dimming the lights all across London. Like you're in Piccadilly Circus and the lights are lower because they don't have the power to keep the lights on in England. Buckingham Palace was being lit by candles The guy at the BBC actually did his news broadcast by candlelight to draw attention to the fact that they're having this power outage. So you're living in England that just went through the cool time of like the swinging 60s. You're England, you know, kind of the swagger of like, oh, Chaucer and Shakespeare and blah, 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 blah. And there's unemployment everywhere and strikes and recession. The punks are starting to rise up. And it's sort of like you're going back to this. Medieval era of like, man, stuff is crazy. Who's in charge? We are angry and we're living by candlelight. How crazy is that in the 70s?
2: You're talking about something that I wanted to get into about this film because breaking down each individual scene, I don't know. That seems to me to be a rough proposition that's not super fun because it's comedy and we can say, oh, we like this, but I don't want to like fully break down like all the machinations of it because I think that that's sometimes it's like revealing the magic trick but
1: are you saying you don't want to get into every single one of the 527 jokes
2: I mean I'll do 236 that's (laughs) it Um, but I do want to really hammer in this idea of being able to do something epic or out of the box with a small budget we talked about that last week with the Green Knight. I don't know the budget of the Green Knight, but obviously there were some restrictions. So they had to make elements of it a little bit more of a hybrid. They couldn't show all the things that they wanted to show. So it edged more towards that Lady Hawk Willow type of costuming. Here, they clearly don't have a lot of money, uh, you know, as shown by the fact that they don't even have a horse, right? Uh, King Arthur runs around uh, as if he is on a horse and his servant is uh, is clopping the, uh, the coconut shells together, right? So I love this idea that in this film, all these choices that you make, all these compromises you have to make actually become hilarious jokes. But more than that, they figure out how to take a big idea and make it for this budget. And I think a lot of people give up on big, interesting ideas. And we get caught in this zone of, well, they're in a house. They're in a, you know, this is all takes place in a high school gymnasium or whatever it is. Like, And it all, I think, actually dilutes great things from happening. Like we can make a big Arthurian legend with a small budget. Um, It just takes a lot more creativity.
1: Yeah, exactly. You just have to be willing to do stuff like, Instead of having actual chainmail, knit string to look like chainmail and then just paint it. So by the way, Graham Chapman actually
2: did wear actual chainmail. And people thought that he was freaking out because he constantly was sweating and feeling uh, nauseous. And that was actually just him going through the DTs because they couldn't get enough alcohol to him uh, where they were shooting. So he was he was. Basically, detoxing on set, uh, and people just assumed it was the heavy, heavy weight of a chainmail. <laughs> by the way, if you are detoxing, I don't think you should get into a chainmail suit. I'm I have never experienced it, but it seems like not the best thing. I also want to well, make sure. The, well, the bright yeah. side
1: might be that after he made this movie, he decided to get clean, although okay. it was so miserable that then he was he dried out by the time he did Life of Brian. So, there's that. Maybe it's like getting scared straight.
2: I, I guess so. I mean, there you go. I just also didn't realize something about this film, and I've seen it so many times, and that's the opening title sequence with the subtitles. I I started watching it, and I saw the subtitles come on. I'm like, oh, did I put subtitles on? And then I went to go take it off, and I was like, how did I always miss this? I, I just, every time I think of this film, it just starts. Wait,
1: I missed it all, too. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, so no, we're not how we alone. Miss and this? my boyfriend who's seen this movie 90 million times. Okay. I don't know. Is it because I've only seen this movie flipping through channels? Have I, I never know. actually watched this movie from the beginning?
2: Well, I want to open this up also to uh, Devin, our audio engineer, who I think knows a lot about Monty Python. And I, I want to make sure that he can not just sitting there stewing as we make guesses. I want to be able to give him the mic when we make a, a mistake here. But Devin, do you know why uh, the titles are not? often seen or why we both had that experience
0: i don't know i mean i'm uh i was by the way i'll just say this i was been considering the last 10 minutes uh, a running bit of like turning off my camera and reappearing with a new piece of monty python like merchandise (laughs) each time Uh, like now there's just an extra record here's the box set here's the books um i i had it on vhs i have it on blu-ray still i mean the credits are on all the versions i've ever had i have to say i i don't
2: raven has the cup look raven has a raven yeah look at this everyone's (laughs) got it
0: Very, very good. Um, I I will say that uh, because it's so, you know, long and mostly black screen until the kind of llama joke kicks in at the end when it goes into kind of upbeat um, mariachi music. Uh, Until then, it's sort of just kind of plain. And so it's entirely possible that there are TV versions of it that cut that off because I think it would confuse people who don't know what it is that they're watching. But I've never seen a version without the opening credit jokes.
2: Wow. You see, that really felt so new to me. And I I was... Just banging my head against the walls, like how did I miss it? And it's so funny. And then I read, in my research, the reason why they had to have a pretty benign title sequence was lack of money. So they could only do uh, white lettering on a black screen. So they they started to comment on it to make it feel like you were watching like an uh, like a Bergman film. <laughs>
1: It's true, and I think it sets up a couple of things so clearly for this movie. Even if you've never seen a Python until this one, which is when they find a joke they like, such as putting the word moose in the credits, and I am now convinced that I should. If I ever get another cat, I should name it Moose. They will just take that joke to the absurdest end of the ocean, and then just keep going and just keep going with it. Well, the and they way do that, that those all moose jokes. This movie. Are-
2: are like layered in, like not every credit is a moose credit, but they are embedded in, are they even real credits at this point? I don't even know because there's like almost a part two of the credits where the moose takes over and it is, <laughs> and it also, I think as a audience member forces you to be like, oh, I need to pay attention to this. And obviously you're in a theater, you're going to be paying attention, but it is, it makes you understand the level to which you need to be watching because it's it's happening on two different levels, even just on titles.
1: No, it's true. And watching it that closely, I was like, oh, vehicles provided from Budget Rent-A-Car. Is yeah. that a joke? Is that a joke about how they had absolutely no money to make this movie? Or did they really just have to get their cars from Budget Rent-A-Car? Who but they wouldn't have
2: from? to list Budget Rent-A-Car in the credits because, unless they were getting them for free, I don't know. And that's the kind of, fun thing of like the movie <laughs> is like is taking you on this journey but I laughed at that too but I'm also like wow they have budget in the UK okay um, but I love all these little like meta ways that they're playing with the form of film throughout uh, and that's like these moments that blink and you miss them when they open up the book like of the film it says like the book of the movie The wise Sir Bedivere was the first to join King
3: Arthur's knights. But other illustrious names were soon to follow. Sir Lancelot, the brave. Sir Galahad, the pure. And Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, who had nearly fought the dragon of Angnor, who had nearly stood up to the vicious chicken of Bristol, and who had personally wet himself at the Battle of Baden Hill. And the aptly named Sir not appearing in this film. Together they formed a band whose names and deeds were to be retold throughout the centuries. The Knights of the Round Table.
2: And I think that is why this movie, and there's a million other reasons, but there are all these little things embedded in every little scene. And I think when you have a small budget, you need to pack it as much as you can. And they do the great thing, which I am a full believer in, that uh, let's keep movies under 90 minutes like let's keep them in that zone when you're a comedy like this just layer in as many jokes as you can and the editing is so fast like when they see uh the god in the sky who tells them about their mission for the holy grail it is edited so funny like the just the pacing
3: of the Britons. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. And don't apologize. Every time I try to talk to someone, it's sorry this and forgive me that and I'm not worthy. What are you doing now? I'm averting my eyes, oh lord. Well, don't. It's like those miserable psalms. They're so depressing. Now knock it off. Yes, lord. Right. Arthur, king of the Britons. Your knights of the round table shall have a task to make them an example in these dark times. Good idea, O oh lord. Of course it's a good idea.
2: That editing style, I know it was not easy to come to, but I do think this is probably the best edited Python film.
1: Well, yeah, I, I like that you're using the word film, because I do think that The Holy Grail doesn't look like one of their TV shows. It looks like a film. Even with this low budget, they make it look big it's and not then, shot on sets like
2: the yeah. monty python that i remember is very much like cardboard walls right and uh yes they're out in the street every now and then but this is all pretty much practical locations it looks like they use the same castle about five times from different angles and you know but which is they, great who yeah, needs, five castles? Who you needs don't. five castles you don't need it
1: when a castle has four walls uh yeah No, you don't need any of that stuff. And I mean, what they were doing for inspiration is they were watching like a lot of Pasolini films, you know, because Pasolini was like the specialist in making movies that were set in the past that kind of evoked the feeling of the past, Mm -hmm. but in ways that looked really simple. You know, the dirt is dirt the trees are trees and the people are acting like they're just living in that zone. I mean, they they pull it off, even as they're making fun of themselves for trying to do an epic on this budget. Like one of their taglines was that this movie, quote, sets cinema back 900 years, which is perfect, actually. That were, It's like such a weird joke on so many levels. You're like, there wasn't even movies 900 years ago. Wait, what? Or, or like their their other tagline was, makes Ben-Hur look like an epic Which you're like, wait, Ben-Hur isn't epic? What's happening? What are you doing? Like, even their taglines make me feel like I'm choking on a fly and I don't understand what's happening to me. And, you know, to me, what's so
2: amazing about this film, and we talk about it as a film, is that for most Americans, they didn't see it in the theater. It was premiered on television, on CBS, as like a late movie, and it was edited to shit, right? Like, this is not the time where you could bit torrent something from overseas, you know, a maybe, you know, I don't even think it was playing in art houses. It was just this version that came on that had a lot of the profanity out of it, a lot of the graphic elements, and it's not an incredibly graphic film, but, you know, if you think about the scene where they're fighting the knight in the woods with all that blood, I'm sure that that is completely cut down for a television cut. Um, And so what happened was they were able to get the American television rights back and then they sold them to PBS so then PBS could put it on in a largely unedited television showing. But this idea that it could have just gone away. I mean, PBS really is the reason why Python is in America. Like, I mean, and and like, and when you think about why we should support public broadcasting, like, that's a great reason right there. And and do you know who broke
0: Monty Python in the United States? What PBS station it was and who owned it?
2: Oh my gosh, no!
0: It's the Dallas PBS station. It was uh, KERA. It was run by Robert Wilson, the father of Owen Wilson and Andrew Wilson.
2: Oh, oh wow. You, Wilson. Their
0: dad was the person who brought Monty Python and really broke them in their first U.S. market. And th- they got to meet Monty Python, Luke and, and Andrew did when they were little kids. And they talk about it a lot. And I just thought that was an interesting fact.
2: I <gasps> love that fact. And let me tell you one thing then on top of that. I think when you look at Bottle Rocket some of those conversations those like little mini conversations have a python sensibility to it not Definitely. you know like that those little machinations you know I oh that's so interesting and by the way you probably draw a bigger line to all these directors that came out in the 90s who were influenced by this like because it was the cool thing like Quentin Tarantino like we're arguing about the Czech or Madonna like these I mean it's it's bringing to the foreground like a distraction comedy. It's like, oh, we're supposed to be doing this, and then we go over here, you know. And it's like, and that idea, I mean, you know, I'm sure people would dispute that, but that definitely is, from a comedic standpoint, being driven by Mozi Python because that's not an SNL thing. That SNL doesn't have the time to do that. That's really interesting.
1: <laughs> I mean, I went on this whole mental rabbit hole thinking about this movie where I was wondering. Yes, this movie was made in part to try to capitalize on getting an American audience finally, you know, to be like the Beatles, go across the pond, figure out how to be huge here. I was thinking, how much is this movie not just making fun of England and like their history of kings who announced themselves as kings in um, the Chivalric Code, which I cannot wait to get into later, especially like since we just watched Green Knight. But they make such a big deal in this movie about Camelot. You know, they do the whole, like, Camelot song and dance, the whole Camelot number, this one right here.
3: Knights, I bid you welcome to your new home. Let us ride to Camelot! We're knights at the round table, we dance whenever we're able. We do routines, to all the scenes, the footwork impeccable. We dine well here in Camelot, we eat ham and jam and scamelot.
1: And of course what they're doing is they're like just riffing off of the musical Camelot, which had come out in the late 60s and before that was like a huge hit on Broadway. Which yeah. then makes this a hit on Broadway decades later. I mean, it's so
2: crazy that the parody of the thing then becomes the actual thing, which is happening more and more. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like when you look at this film to go, oh, yeah, and and one day, you know, (laughs) six decades later, five decades later, whatever, uh, this will now make uh, a successful Broadway musical. It's like, who even put that together, but yet it does, and it stood on its own two feet, and you have Mike Nichols directing it. We talked about that on our Mike Nichols episode, Uh, but the idea that like they also infused the same type of humor that Monty Python brought to film, they brought to Broadway, and I think that's the only reason why that survived, because someone actually realized, we need to deconstruct Broadway the way we deconstructed the film.
1: Well totally. Yeah. Well and we need to have, you know, a song montage to the Laker Girls which they do in spam a lot. (laughs)
2: So odd that for a Broadway play they have a Laker Girls segment because well, I guess Nick City dancers. No one cares. Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're watching Winning Time. I don't know why I'm still watching. I Winning love it, Time, but okay, all right, fair enough. You don't but like it, it?
2: Oh wow! You know,
1: okay. the fourth episode, which is where I'm at now, is the best one so far. Oh, even I though thought I, like, I thought the
2: the second episode was good, third episode was great, and then I was I haven't watched fourth yet.
1: I mean. Okay, Quincy Isaiah's Magic Johnson, amazing, amazing. I love him. I want the show to have to give us more of him. I think he's fantastic. But I'm so reverted. I want to go back to Camelot for a second, you know, because Camelot here has meant something really particular to like America in the 1960s. You know, because of musicals like Camelot that painted this idea of King Arthur's court as like romantic and courtly and oh they tried to do good things and oh it was a place where everything was wonderful and magical and oh here there's here this is even a song from Camelot right here
3: the rain may never fall till after sundown by eight the morning fog must disappear in short there's simply not a more congenial spot for happily ever aftering than here in Kamala
1: I mean, Camelot is being used tactically in America as this idea of a mythological kingdom that was better than anything except for JFK's presidency. You know, because they draw this really strong line between JFK and Camelot on purpose, kind of like propaganda, because JFK's presidency, you know, very stressful. He's got Bay of Pigs, the Berlin Wall is built, the Cold War starts, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis, then he dies. And like, that's a lot. That is a lot. It was a really, really tense time for the entire country. But after he dies, you know, Jackie O very pointedly gives this interview where she talks a lot about Camelot. She says like that JFK was a huge fan of Camelot, like one of his Harvard friends actually wrote it. And she reworks a line from Camelot to try to redefine his whole presidency, not as something crazy and stressful, but as something aspirational for all of Americans to want to strive to, as though JFK was the true king and she was the true queen. The original line from Camelot is King Arthur says, don't let it be forgot that there was once a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And Jackie O takes that to her own ends. And she says, there will be great presidents again, but there will never be another Camelot. So this idea of Camelot here in America is larger than life, you know, idealistic, you know, the country that we're somehow aspiring to be, even though it is like In England, and as we talked about in the Green Knight, never existed in the first place, and there's absolutely no like historical background for Arthur. I think there is something pointed in this movie coming along and saying, Yeah, 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 yeah. This whole period, it's not like gallant knights singing around. It is like mud and chaos and people seizing power, not being like awarded power, not being like granted and noble and therefore in charge of a country. But it is people cutting throats and like declaring their own supremacy. And a lot of things that we don't want to think about when we think about Camelot or presidencies or leadership, all the stuff we kind of black out. I think this movie is really pointed about that. Well, and I think
2: the reason why we picked this film to follow Green Knight was Green Knight is also deconstructing this idea of this idyllic time, right? We all know that history is written by the winners and this idea that everything was perfect. But yeah, they're it, it isn't. Like, if you understand history, it simply is not true. And I, and I love the the joke in this film that comes back uh, very much at the end, like, where they kill this historian. Like, the historian is there narrating. You have this quick cut to a historian out there uh, talking about what is actually going on. And I almost feel like that also plays into your your idea. Like, don't worry about the real history here. We're telling you. I mean, obviously... I think it's a joke, too, so I don't want to, like, overanalyze it. But the idea that, like, there is the mythologized history and then there is the actual history. And so when people, like, read, like, Howard Zinn's, like, book about the history of America, you're like, oh, my God. Or then when you look at, like, you know, the 1619 podcast, you're like, wait, what? It's like, well, we've been force-fed or, or told the story. And I think part of the wrestling with why that's so hard is because we want to live in this we were heroes everything was great and we treated everybody well like you know but when you realize that like the founding fathers stumbled into democracy ultimately like it like it it was An idea, but any little thing could have gone wrong and collapsed the entire process. Well, totally. I'll even actually
1: go like a step nerdier than where you're going. Because when you really listen to what the historian himself is saying, you know, the person who's in this movie supposed to be the guy who's going to tell us how history really was, even what he's saying is not accurate you know, he's being like, he's being so empathetic to Arthur. He's like, oh, he's really frustrated. He's leaving out the fact that they're losing this battle against the French because they're being really dumb because they built a Trojan rabbit and didn't get inside. He's framing (laughs) it in ways that like compliment the British. He calls the French ferocious. And in a way, I think this is a joke, how even today we use history and the way we tell it to kind of reassert nationalism to kind of tell lies about ourselves, even still, even the people in this movie who come in and we're supposed to trust them, you cannot trust them. And I, I I know it sounds like I'm reading a bit into this, but I kind of don't think I am because Terry Jones himself like went on to make medieval history documentaries. And he made a point of making sure he didn't make that kind of documentary where it's like, I know everything. I uh, trust me. I'm like the vaunted historian in his own documentaries. He kind of frames himself more like a tourist and he does kind of camera angles to show that he is not like stepping into history. He's kind of making a joke almost of the idea that any person is an authority and can tell you exactly how it was. In that like these kind of pompous academics who these guys definitely know because they went to Cambridge and Oxford, you know, don't even deserve the trust that we d- we give to them, even when somebody like Terry Jones aspires to be so smart. And by the way, if you go and watch some of his documentaries, which are fantastic, especially as ones in the medieval era, I- it gave me even a deeper insight into the kind of commentary he's making in this movie. Because, for example, he did one on knights, on medieval knights, and the way he talks about knights and the origins of them you can tell that he thinks knights are just violent idiots. Our story of the knight begins in 1066, when William the Bastard
3: conquered England. The Anglo-Saxons called his followers knights, which became knights. William, who now understandably changed his name to William the Conqueror, rewarded his knights with land and property. But they didn't pay rent. Instead, they had to provide military service for the king. The whole system was designed as a war machine. And the sort of knight who did well in it was not the quiet retiring type. The ability to beat another man to a bloody pulp or cut him to pieces was not merely a requirement of knighthood. It was one of its ideals.
1: Actually, one of the interesting things he talks about in that documentary is he talks about the origin of the word chivalry. Like chivalry, that word comes from the old French word for horse. And so they made the chivalric code and for the knights because the knights were the people who were like riding around on horses. And the chivalric code that we keep hearing is like this ideal, you know, that all the good knights live up to it and blah, 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 is really nuts. I mean, one of the tenets of the chivalric code, which sounds pretty nice, is like, if you're a knight and you come across a maiden and she's by herself, you cannot rape this maiden. Do we- not rape this maiden. Okay. However, if you come across this maiden and she's with another knight, well, if you kill that knight, then it's okay to rape the maiden because, like, you know, she's yours now. I mean, what? Like, that's that's nuts. And I think this whole movie takes that chivalric code that we've been that we were talking about last week and going like, whatever a lady says to you, you have to obey and blah 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 blah. But also, you have to be like a good knight and not besmirch anybody's virtue. It makes fun of that so directly. I mean, when, when Galahad goes to the castle and he's like trying to be the good, gallant knight, and he's just surrounded by like babes trying to hit on him, that is yeah. just a complete lampoon of this whole cliche of medieval stories we were talking about last week.
3: Oh, you have suffered much. You are delirious. Look, look I have seen it. It is here. Mr. Galahad, you would not be so ungallant as to refuse our hospitality. Well, I know. I, yeah. Oh, I'm afraid. Our life must seem very dull and quiet compared to yours. We are but eight score young blondes and brunettes, all between 16 and 19 and a half, cut off in this castle with no one to protect us. Oh, it is a lonely life, bathing, dressing, undressing, making exciting underwear. We are just not used
1: to handsome nights. Nene, come, come. You may lie here. Oh, but you are wounded. No, no, it's nothing. And also, larger scale, I mean, the the black knight who gets, like, cut to pieces, to me, that feels so much like it's just talking about Gawain. Like, the punishments that a knight is supposed to take and, and suffer it and be fine and act like it's just a scratch. Like, the, the pain you're supposed to endure. To being a hero that we were talking about last week, that is—I mean, I know it's a dumb joke about a guy who gets all of his limbs cut off and he's laughing, but it is also written by guys who know that they're commenting on, like, Arthurian storytelling. Now stand
3: aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch—a scratch. Your arm's off. No, it isn't. But well, what's that then? I've had worse. You liar! Come on, you pansy! <laughs> 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 Victory is mine. We thank thee, Lord, that in thy mind... Mother...
2: Let's talk about the idea that the running joke in this film is, well, I'm not dead yet. I'm not, like, that, that comes back multiple times. Like, they are so quick to write someone off or to get rid of their problems through the most base means. It's like, all right, well, yeah, they're dead. They're trying to appear, uh, well, I did the best I could, but yet the person is not dead, and, and that... The actor who plays the not-dead-yet man on uh, John Cleese's shoulder in that first scene of the Bring Out Your Dead is so wonderful. Like, sometimes, like, obviously, Monty Python, uh, the group, they play multiple characters in this film. I think Michael Penielin plays 12 characters. I think he's the most in the whole film. But occasionally, other people pop in. The witch, uh, the woman who plays the witch, also great. Like, they are really good at casting uh people that are incredibly additive. They're not playing the comedy of it. And that's interesting, too, because I often find that Monty Python plays some bigger, goofy characters, but when they cast these side actors, they play them very straight, you know? And depending on the scene, different people... But I think Graham Chapman is a beautiful straight man in this. Like, you know, like when when he is, retreat, retreat, run away, run away. Like, it's like there is a (laughs) level of... uh, Like, it's goofy that they're running away, but he also does it with a... On, uh, like, a, there's a, there's a tone. There's a, the, he carries himself with a high status in doing it, which I really, really yeah. love.
1: I mean, in a way, he plays as Arthur almost as straight as the Arthur in the Green Knight.
2: You mm-hmm. know, he's
1: not playing him like a gigantic buffoon. In fact, most of the people in this aren't playing like a gigantic buffoon. Like John Cleese's uh, Lancelot, who's like running around and killing people before he even figures out what's going on. Like when he thinks yes. the lady is captured, which is also medieval historians will say how stories about Lancelot usually went, that he was like a charge first, kill first, and then figure out what was happening. That That's his character. I mean, John Cleese is doing all of these idiotic things, but he's doing them straight. And I think there's something in the seriousness that they play these characters that makes it so much funnier than if they're just like, waka waka, it's a me, it's a Lancelot, you know?
2: Well, you know, this other idea that we're talking about, and I know we're like covering a lot of bigger ideas which I think I like about this one because again the movie is just incredibly funny I would say the first 40 minutes is non-stop bangers uh you know it it really up until the Camelot section you you can't go wrong there's not there's nothing that's slow about the film it's just boom 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 and it not that it goes downhill but it truly is you're like wow like again watching this movie again I haven't watched it in a while You're like, all these things are back to back. It's so quick. It's so funny. Uh, But getting back to what you were saying, I do think that this is the attitude of younger people and not like that they're 18 years old, I'm saying, but people who are educated and smart, they're trying to teach you something in in the smallest way and also at the same time make you laugh. But I think the way that they're making you laugh is by... Like subverting our knowledge of it, but actually they're actually commenting on it in the smartest way. It's not just like knights are stupid. It's like, no, no, here's a version of it that we know. If that makes sense.
1: No, it does. I mean, if what we know about like, say, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is that they're this figure in England who established order, you know? Yeah, this movie shows that their order is just a dis- it's like a delusion. The more that King Arthur goes and says, like, I'm in charge, follow me. People are just like, whatever, that the behavior of people is still sort of chaotic and disorganized. And that anybody who says they're in control is just fooling themselves, you know, that the people have mouths and can talk back.
2: It's a film that takes its job as a film seriously. Like they aren't phoning it in. They're not making it ultra shitty. Like, you know, they are. They are finding ways to subvert the form, but at the same time, they can just throw up their hands and be like, and we're done. Like the end is, yeah, that's it. We don't have the budget to do this. And we are like, it just <laughs> kind of rips the 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 carpet out from under them. But it's at that point, I think, earned because it's like, oh, we did it. We got as far as we're gonna get with this budget level, with this story, and now we are going to tie it into The Historian. We're not going to be able... They couldn't do a big battle, which is what they wanted the end of the movie to be, so they kind of do this meta-ending that oddly is fulfilling. You know, you, you're you watching them work with nothing, and at a certain point, they run out of nothing, and they they call it. I love that. I just love that ending, and it also, <laughs> in a weird way... I think sketches are so hard to end and the sketch movie is incredibly hard to end because there's no real plot that we care about. And I think this movie does have some really good elements. Life of Brian, I think, has a lot more plot. Um, but in this, what better way to end it than, than kind of this final subversion, like this this ending where it's like, and it's all a movie. We've We've commented throughout that it's a movie, but now we're going to show you, we're going to like really show it to you. But they're not commenting. <laughs> and I and this is what I guess I'm having trouble defining, but they're not looking to camera and going, it's a movie. And I feel like that there is an element of that in sometimes bad comedy. I hate like, oh, we're laughing in the scene. Oh, we're having so much fun. Like that to me feels like you're selling out the form. Whereas this, it feels like they were having fun commenting on it without like shrugging to the audience. I mean, it's a a fine line of what the difference is. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of me wants to go in deep and be like, what does it mean if King Arthur's like arrested by the cops in the modern era? Does it mean like that kind of behavior doesn't fly today? Like what's going on? And then part of me is like, eh, it's anarchic and I like it. And I'm totally fine with it. I, th- I, mean, like, I think John it's his Cleese budget. Has, it's simply
2: yeah. his budget. Like they're like, we can't, we can't do what we want to do. So we're going to add this historian runner and we're just going to pop it in at the end. Cause the historian thing is just a moment in the film that they could make it feel fulfilling And you forget about it, but then it also feels genius. Like, I love, uh, I think Chappelle did this thing in his special where he's like, I am going to tell you the punchline, my last joke at the first joke of the special. And it's like, and you hear it and then you forget all about it. And then it just pops back in at the end. You're like, oh my God, it's genius. And it's this like, it's that layering. Like, it's such a simple layering that... The ending is anticlimactic, but also fulfilling. And it's like, that is the smartest thing. They just don't give up. They give up, but they also pay off something that that you <laughs> felt was a, a throwaway. You're like, oh, well, that's never coming back. Yeah. That's just like an aside.
1: I mean, like John Cleese has said today that he's like disappointed by the ending, that it annoys him and that it just, he just said like, quote, it ends the way that it does because we couldn't think of any other way. But you know, I mean, I think a big battle would be, boring. That's my least favorite of so many comedies. Yeah. You know, like, so many comedies are built around, like, the quest. We gotta do this. Blah, blah, blah. And then they usually decide at the end, I guess we have to have a shootout or some sort of well, we how did it do you be, thing. How, it's like, who cares? I always find that, like, ending shootout of, you know, even movies I love. Like, 22 Jump Street or something. I'm like, I don't care about any of this.
2: But it, but but it's like, how do you top the rabbit battle? How mm-hmm. do you top the battle where they're just throwing animals at them? There's there's They're already are multiple battles in this film. You know, the night scene, the bloody night scene, one of the best, you know, one of those iconic scenes. It's like, you've already done all the the bits that you would do in a battle scene anyway. So it's like they, by not revisiting it, you get to have each of those battle scenes have their own little moment and not just put together in this big, I'm going to fall asleep because it's a lot of action. I mean, action is hard to make funny unless you're Jackie Chan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or Buster Keaton, obviously, you know, but I think that, like that silent... Or silence, the
1: Daniels and everything, everywhere all at once.
2: There you go. I mean, and I think that that is such a, it's such an art. And I think yeah. at the end of the day, which is a term I hate using, you know, Monty Python is not known for like great, uh, you know, use of camera i guess like like i don't know what a monty python battle would look like i i think it it feels very like fun it feels like very college to me it has that energy to it so like why would they force themselves into a pocket to make something that looks like this epic battle that they would never really be able to capture on this budget and maybe you know and and look i i think you can make arguments there either way but it's like this budget was not going to be I think, I don't know. The rabbit battle is so funny because it also shows you how little they have to work with.
1: Yeah, I feel like the rabbit battle, plenty for me. And by the way, kill a rabbit, not that arbitrary. Like if you go back and look at medieval manuscripts, you know how they have that kind of marginalia around the mm. borders of old books, the little doodles where like so many of the creatures look like my cat. Yeah. I was like Googling Medieval drawings that look exactly like my cat. And it was really terrifying. It's like he stepped out of history. But they have a whole thing in those doodles of like killer rabbits. It was like a real thing in medieval books. If you look around the edges, there's like rabbits sword fighting, rabbits like cutting human beings' throats, rabbits that are like riding dragons, rabbits that are wearing humans over their shoulder like they just went hunting for humans and now they're carrying a human back home. So, yeah, killer rabbits, historically a thing. If not historically accurate,
3: there is. Where? There. What? Behind the rabbit? It is the rabbit. You silly sod! What? You got us all worked up. Well, that's no ordinary rabbit. Oh. That's the most foul, cruel, and bad temper rodent you ever set eyes on. You tit. I saw my arm and I was so scared. Look, that rabbit's got a vicious street a mile wide. It's a killer. Get stuff. it will do you a treat, mate. Oh yeah, mankey, Scots git. I'm warning you. What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge sharp. He can leap about. Look at the bones.
0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
2: I want to go back to directing for a second because I'm not slighting the direction of this film because I think it is actually really uh, amazingly realized. And I think having the two of them attack it together creates this really interesting tone because you have such an uncomplicated shot of like the two guards who have to watch uh you know the um the prince who you know is can't leave his room right and they just keep it on this uh, kind of wide and medium shot it, it plays out in almost real time which is a hard thing to do but i think when you mix and match that style, like we have you know, a very fast motion style, and you have these like nice, big, long wide shots and these great dance numbers. Uh, it really also shows like the benefit of a sketch movie having different directors and having different formulas there because it doesn't feel like you're 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 walking on the same territory. and I guess honestly, like I understand why they had a hard time in in the Edit Bay because it is different styles, but the different styles, I think, is why the film works and and ultimately, the best version of them on film. I mean, "Meaning of Life" is great. "Life of Brian." I have They're to rewatch. All great.
1: I feel like every time I watch them, it's my favorite. But right now, I mean, now, this I, is I, my I, do you consider
2: a "Fish Called Wanda" Monty Python movie?
1: No, 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 no. no. I feel like it okay. has to have this particular type okay. of. of of wow, Devin
2: really was upset about that. Get,
0: get out of here. Come oh. on. It doesn't even have a co-write. That's just <laughs> a straight Cleese script. All right. Well, yes, well, uh, in it, but yeah, no, yeah. it is not a Python. But uh, okay. I will
1: say to your point about sketches, we were talking about this a little bit last week. I think there is something fascinating in the idea that a movie of sketches is not so different from how we told stories about like epic heroes back in the day. I kind of feel like the more I think about it, we've just been telling the same kind of stories in different cultures forever. Like if, if the Knights of the Round Table and all their crazy stories about like Gawain and Gaswain are basically like comic books, you know, kind of episodic things start and restart. Time doesn't really matter. Chronologies are all smashed up together. I mean, that is like the Greek gods. It's like the Egyptian gods. It's like the Viking gods. It's like, we just keep telling stories in the same way. And I think the pythons capture that. I don't know if they consciously capture that, but to do an episodic, sketchy movie about King Arthur is to basically do a King Arthur movie the way the people of the time would have done a King Arthur movie.
2: Well, you know, that's really interesting. I I didn't think about it like that. And I'm looking at a lot of the ideas that they explore, you know, through all their films. And I know that Devin's favorite Monty Python film uh, has to be absolutely anything. uh, The Simon Pegg one. (laughs) The Simon Uh,
0: Pegg one? Yeah. The last Terry Jones movie. Yeah. (laughs)
2: But it sure uh, isn't. <laughs> and that, but when you type in Monty Python movies, that pops up and Fish Called Walnut doesn't. I don't understand the distinction between uh, why that well, one is. Well, there are
0: more pythons in Absolutely uh, Anything than right. there are in Fish Call That's Walnut. That's a I real. See. It's very tenuous.
2: Very tenuous. Um, <laughs> but they do explore this. History, like, you know, whether it is Life of Brian, whether it is The Holy Grail, Eric the Viking, which I know it's not like, again, these are like subsidiary films or movies, you know, it's like Time Bandits, uh, you know, and a lot of this is Terry Gilliam, but there is this idea of existing more in the past than in the present. We don't, you know, the meaning of life definitely is more in the present or pops around a little bit, but uh, I do believe that there's something about going in the past that gives them a a more unique vantage point and makes their stuff a little bit more timeless. It doesn't feel of the moment. Now, that doesn't mean the show is, you know, obviously of the time, it's not in the past, but I love that for films, they went backwards to, I think, to make sure it would last or make it feel bigger and different. Like, you know, because I think a comedy that takes place in modern times might wear out its welcome at a certain point. Like, oh, why would that happen anymore? Why would this go on? And, and you know, you have certain people that can pull off a film again. I don't know, though, because I'm looking at it like, I think John Hughes is timeless. Like, Home Alone feels timeless to me. Uh, you know, uh, I love Planes, Trains, and Automobiles as well. I feel like that feels timeless. Like, there are some stories like that, but it's very hard, I think, to come by to have a comedy film be something that people want to revisit. And here, I think... The time period allows you to revisit it at any time. It doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel old. The And the commentary will never change because the yeah. time hasn't changed.
1: If anything, yeah, it, it makes it still feels so relevant. When they get to the part in the movie where they're trying to fight the rabbit and they, they um, talk about the holy grenade in the Book of Armaments, I was like, man... This speech is probably going to be used by some GOP House candidate this summer. It could just be said by a GOP House candidate.
3: (laughs) And St. Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths and carp, and anchovies and orangutans and breakfast cereals and fruit bats. and a t- bit, brother.
1: Oh, and let alone the Robin song. The song about how if you're like Sir Robin, your whole purpose in life is just to get tortured in many ways and you just have to take it. Otherwise, people will sing songs about what a giant co- like coward you are. I mean, that is that is honestly in song. Everything that seems like it's going through Dev Patel's mind as he's like heading towards the Green Knight's lair.
3: Bravely bold Sir Robin Brought forth from Camelot He was not afraid to die Oh, brave Sir Robin He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken, to have his kneecap split and his body burned away, and his limbs all hacked and mangled, brace a robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplucked and his nostrils draped and his bottom burnt off and his penis. That's the that's, uh, that's enough music for now, lads.
2: <laughs> and and I I will, I will say like in thinking about Green Knight and this film, looking at them back to back, you know that trip that he takes, uh, the mushroom trip, you know, it has elements of an elevated, uh, Terry Gilliam animation, right? Like these creatures and these looks, you know, it's, they, they are, I mean, obviously Terry Gilliam has such a, a beautiful and wonderful style, but I love the idea that there are so many similarities, you know, this idea that I think that these movies do share, uh, a similar DNA. It's deconstructing. In, in many ways, we talked about Green Knight being a, a movie about get out of the house. A mom trying to get her kid to get out of the house, right? Like That's the story underneath it. Yeah. Uh, told in this time where we look back and think everyone is heroic and everyone is triumphant, but we, we are still dealing with people who won't leave the house. And we think that that is a a modern problem. And here we're looking back at knights and, and what's going on there. And this idea that no, these aren't heroes either. They were violent. They were stupid. They were lucky. And um, I just like the idea of using the past to tell something that feels a lot more epic in scope, but but still keeps this relatability or this connection. This is a silly, dumb movie that's an epic film. And I feel like so many people, when they go to make a sketch movie or do something like this, they this is not the first thought. One of the reasons why I always loved... Like, this is the end. I think that's the first Seth and Evan-directed film. It's like, whoa, they didn't just do, like, a Hangout movie. They did a Hangout movie in an apocalypse scenario where fucking creatures are coming through the walls, and, you know, they up the ante. They get the funniest people there, and they make it visually so fun, and I just want that sometimes in comedies. And, And, look, I'm guilty of thinking, like, well, what can I afford to shoot? What can I make... And the truth is, is like you can really afford to get anyone behind it. Maybe it's helpful if Led Zeppelin's behind you, but I do think this idea of like thinking out of the box creatively, I think might open us up to you know a lot more interesting options of 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 ways of telling stories. And I think we just have to embrace uh, embrace that. I, I will say that every decision that people talk to me about, or a lot of decisions people talk to me about in ntsf and in human giant were out of necessity we couldn't afford something different you know um and and figuring that out is part of the fun too because you often realize that the the quick answer is well we get this amazing thing and then you go whoa whoa, wait, actually that's not the thing the thing is the thing like the joke is here like it actually makes you like pare down what the joke is and then you can actually make a better i don't know make a better joke like you know uh so I do think that like having constraints and having the walls come in on you to force you to understand what the joke is, because anything might be funny on a bigger budget. But when you have to work within a smaller budget and figure out how to do your big idea small, I'm, I'm all for it.
1: I mean, I agree. And most... Unless agree.
2: when I'm in production, and I'm furious about it. Then I'm not. <laughs> but after it's done and people like it, I'm really happy about it.
1: I mean, I agree. And most reviewers agree, but one reviewer did not agree. And that was Gene Siskel of the Chicago what? Tribune. No. Yeah, he said for my money, I wasn't particularly knocked out by Holy Grail. For me, it contained about ten very funny moments and 70 Whoa. minutes of silence. He too missed many about of the jokes took too long jokes. to set up, a trait shared by both Blazing Saddles and young Frankenstein. The comparison with Blazing Saddles really fits because the King Arthur story with its gallant knights in shining armor stands in roughly the same mythological position in British history as does the myth of the white-headed cowboy in our own culture. I guess I just prefer Monty Python in chunks, in its original television review format. This Alas movie
2: is in chunks. System. It is in chunks. This movie is all chunks. I would argue that the plot of this movie is kind of hard to follow in a way. Um, this movie is just individual sketches thrown together by a uh, like a time period. It's it is like it, we're just popping around. It you know I don't know. I that that's a really interesting review, especially from him, who I feel like. Well, maybe Roger Ebert's more of the champion of this, uh, you know, but I mean, I wonder what he thought about. But I
1: do like the one-to-one of the King Arthur and the Knights to cowboy movies. I think that's really Mm. smart. I think, I I, think, I like that. That makes me want to do Blazing Saddles soon, to be honest.
2: Well, you know what it makes me want to do actually in a way is I feel like you, you can't deny, and I would love to do Blazing Saddles, but you can't deny that History of the World Part One definitely had to be influenced by this film. I mean, Mel Brooks (laughs) makes that in 1981 and that's his take on this. And he's doing it in a much uh way, you know, he's trying to do the world. But like it's clearly is like they set the table and he is continuing it in his own style, but that same kind of quick cutting, uh, you know, he's through history, you know. I mean, I I, I think you could even argue like Zelig. Well, Zelig <laughs> is moving through, but I have this idea of like these sketches, like these these Sketches of history and subverting what we know of history. This is an interesting time. And I think every filmmaker is influencing each other going like, oh, how do I want to subvert that? How do I want to tell that story? Mm-hmm. Um, I
1: love this. I love yeah. all of this. But now we have to talk about what we want to do next. And the truth is we're sort of winging it, but sort of vibing right now in this like ye old swamp talk mystical stuff fantastical things people running around knights and swords and i want to kind of keep in this zone i'm i'm just gonna say it i think we should do shrek
2: well all right we're going down this rabbit hole i would have just done blazing saddles but if you want to do shrek uh you know what i am so excited oh, don't tempt uh, me with
1: blazing saddles but yeah i want to i want to stick in the swamp for a bit
2: all right, one more Swamp uh, film. Let's do it. Let's bring on, uh, oh, my God, Smash Mouth. Here we come. Princess, where are you? It's very spooky in here. I ain't playing no
3: games. Well, at least we know where the princess is. But where's the dragon? dragon! DreamWorks Pictures invites you to a land of fairy tales. <laughs> hey! Oh no 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 no! Dead girl off the table. Well, I was supposed to put The bed's taken. What? We're an unlikely hero. Ah! You definitely need some Tic Tacs or something because your breath stinks. Rescues a fair princess. You didn't slay the dragon. It's on my to do list from a nasty ah, villain.
2: Eat
3: me. With the help of his trusty companion.
2: This is gonna be fun. We can see him late swapping manly stories, in the morning. I'm making waffles.
1: All right, Shrek, you know the deal. You know where to find it. Anywhere you want to find an ogre, there will be Shrek. And we will be Shrek next week.